You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending, so just be warned. Rounders, which came out in 1998 and was directed by John Dahl. It stars Matt Damon, Ed Norton, Gretchen Maul, John Turturro, Martin Landau, Michael Raspoli, Famke Janssen, and John Malkovich. The genre would be sports drama. He was an ace player who gave up cards to go to law school. But just when his life was coming together, his best friend got in trouble with the mob. 25 grand do I stop breaking things. You're fixing to go down hard. Now, you little punk. We do what we used to do, man. You find the games, you scout them, I sit and I mop them up. He's got to risk everything to save him. You sure about this? You see any other way? Matt Damon, Edward Norton. Deal. Rounders Rated R starts Friday in theaters everywhere. Just like the best games, what makes this movie such an enduring rewatch are all of the key players who we see on screen. Let's start with Matt Damon. He's great in this for sure. Definitely building on the fresh-faced underdog prodigy persona that he had just set up for himself the year prior with Goodwill Hunting, and also The Rainmaker. Damon has never looked more like a matinee idol than in this movie. And granted, he does look too fresh-faced for a, quote, rounder who never sleeps, there are a few moments when this almost takes you out of the movie. Almost. But he makes up for that with a strong handle of the dialogue and, of course, those poker scenes. It's plenty wise. We know what we're holding and we know what you're holding. <laughs> the fuck you know what we all got? Summer clerkship in your office says I know what you're holding. I don't bet with jobs like that. Let's just say I'll put you at the top of the list if you're right. Okay. <clears throat> well... You were looking for that third three, but you forgot that Professor Green folded it on 4th Street, and now you're representing it. You have it. Um, the DA made his two pair, but he knows they're no good. Judge Kaplan was trying to squeeze out a diamond flush, but he came up short, and Mr. Eisen is futilely hoping that his queens are going to stand up. So, like I said, the dean's bet is $20. Well, kiss my ass. <laughs> kiss my ass. <laughs> His Mike McDermott is definitely the kind of role that Tom Cruise would have played a decade prior, or that John Travolta might have played 15 years prior. But it says a lot just about how good of an actor Damon has always been, that 25 years later, he still has had a much more consistent acting career than either of those guys. It's the truth. Then Edward Norton. He pulled off this and American History X the same year? Hey, guys, English only at the table, no Russian. What are you talking about? What am I talking about? If you want to see this seventh card, you're going to stop speaking fucking Sputnik. You understand? Oh, dumb motherfucker. Don't worry, we might work together. Yeah, I'm sure you're just talking about pierogies and snow and shit, but let's cut it out, all right? There's the river, down and dirty. It's just absolutely insane that he had the chops to pull off Derek Vineyard in that movie, and in this movie, to channel Midnight Cowboy-era Dustin Hoffman as Worm. That's the name of his character. That he did these two roles back-to-back. -back. Incredible. His worm in this movie is both predictably aggravating and endearing at the same time. The way he pulls off the ratty leather coat and hunched over walk is just perfect. All right, it's stupid. It's just bad business. All right, see, look, this is what I love about you, okay? You think about the big picture. That's great, okay? But it's not me. I don't play the game straight up, and then if I lose, go get some real work or something, okay? I see a mark. I take them down. That's what I do. That's the way I live. I know. I know. Listen, you're the guy who taught me all the angles, all right? But I'm not the guy with my nose open right now. They're, they're Russian outfit guys. With those fake Versace shirts and shit? 
Jesus. Lose their fucking money back to him, all right? Just make it look good. Just catch a run of real shitty cards and I give it back to him. I can't. I can't. I gotta put some scratch together, man. I gotta get something going. The next player, Martin Landau. His wise old Jewish judge slash professor is a purely fictional creation. I still don't entirely buy what he does for Mike in the third act. His character's name is Petrovsky, and Petrovsky is written entirely as a mentoring device for Damon. But props to him for genuinely selling his monologue about leaving the yeshiva so effectively. Because all I understood of the Talmud, I never saw God there. You couldn't lie to yourself. I tried. Well, I tried like crazy. I mean, people were counting on me. But yours is a, a respectable profession. Not to my family. My parents were destroyed, devastated by my decision. You can easily buy how Landau, the actor, was also mentoring Damon, the actor, in those moments, which is a big reason why they still work. The last thing I took away from the yeshiva is this. We can't run from who we are. Our destiny chooses us. Next player, John Turturro. His performance as Joey Kanish might actually be my personal favorite from this movie. You, you see all the angles. You never have the fucking stones to play one. Stones? You're a little punk. I'm not playing for the thrill of fucking victory here. I owe rent, alimony, child support. I play for money. My kids eat. I got stones enough not to chase cards, actions, or fucking pipe dreams of winning the World Series on ESPN. You want me to call some people? Try and buy you some time, I will. Place to stay or the truck? No problem. But about the money, I gotta do this. I gotta say no. And that's because of the no-bullshit way that he delivers every single line, including this gem. I don't mean to interrupt you, uh, future magistrates and noblemen, but I uh, need a word. John Malkovich. Malkovich. No living human being from the Eastern Hemisphere has ever spoken like this guy. Just like a young man coming in for a quickie. I feel so unsatisfied. Sorry. You must feel proud and good. Strong enough to beat the world. You feel fine? Me too. I feel okay. It's a fucking joke anyway. After all, I am paying you with your money. What'd you say? Your money. I am still up uh, 20 grand from this last time I stick it in you. And that's why you hire Malkovich, and you arm him with nothing but Oreos. <laughs> what else is there to say except that his Teddy KGB was probably the most purely entertaining fictional sports villain since Clubber Lang from Rocky Three. That's high praise. And in my club, I will splash the pot whenever the fuck I please. And then Famke Jansen. Now, you can make a case that her character, Petra, is arguably more unrealistic than Landau's. I mean, seriously, she's the enforcer of the local underground poker club who they are sending out for collections? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm sorry to be back over here for this reason. Don't worry about it. No, I, I like being here. It's good to see you, Mike. Good stay. Um, I tell you, I'll, I'll um... I'll come, I'll come by, I'll see you down at the club. I'll come by this weekend. Yeah. Regardless, she is charming, sexy, and she makes it all look effortless. 
I mean, just seeing the casual way that her character is sprawled forward in the chair when they're watching Johnny Tran on video at Mike's place, you can at least buy how she's part of this world. Twice in one week. For someone who don't play, spend a lot of time in card rooms. This is what I like to see, huh? Mike McDermott where he belongs. Sitting with the scumbags, telling jokes, dragging the occasional pot. I was actually going to try and make some uh, real money tonight, but in honor of Mike's alley-like return to the ring, I'll sit with you all for a while. This brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Now, if you came of age in the 1990s as I did, one band which seemed positively unavoidable on the airwaves for most of that decade was San Francisco's own roots-slash-alternative rock collective formed by vocalist Adam Duritz and guitarist David Bryson in 91. I'm referring to the Counting Crows, of course. Mr. Jones, Round Here, A Long December. These songs were just omnipresent, featuring punchy instrumentation, relatable lyrics, and of course those distinct emotional vocals from Duritz. Now, to be honest, I personally liked The Counting Crows until I just kind of got sick of them. But that was more of a reflection of me just listening to too much modern rock radio at the time, more than the quality of their music. Well, they provide a song which we hear at the very end of the movie that's not on the film's soundtrack, nor was ever released as a track on any Counting Crows album, as far as I can tell. It might have been forgotten, in fact, but like this movie's reputation since performing moderately at the box office back in 98, this song has really gone on to have a devoted following. It ended up even being one of their most requested songs on tours, and it was recently heard prominently on an episode of The Bear. Love that show. And his choices of needle drops have been next level. The song is likely funkier than other Counting Crows songs, but it still keeps that soulful feel of their most notable hits, helped in no small part by Duritz's vocals, which get increasingly expressive as the song builds towards its conclusion. It kicks off with some low-key piano chords and closes out with Duritz's continuously belting out a passionate closing phrase. Just a uniquely catchy song which can keep you interested through the entire closing credits. I'm talking about Baby, I'm a Big Star Now. Some people will cut you till you're bleeding But not me, cause I just wanna do it to myself the next category would be wasted talent this is the most underutilized talent involved with the film now back to those players, there was one I didn't mention if you noticed, with regards to Gretchen Maul. <laughs> now this might be a point of controversy for diehard fans of this movie, of which I consider myself of course. Despite the backlash stirred up by this performance, following some overblown media hype about her star rising beforehand, Gretchen Maul is actually not bad in this movie, playing Joe, Mike's soon-to-be ex-girlfriend. 
Her character is actually spot on in almost everything she says to him. But there's the rub. The movie is not nearly as entertaining or satisfying if he actually listens to her. It's just the definition of a thankless role. Honey, you're the one who told me that I should use my poker skills in the courtroom. Yeah, I know I said that, but I think you know what I meant. I meant that you should use your head. You know, like the way you calculate odds on the spot, the way you read people. That's what I meant. I didn't mean that you should try to con your way into a summer job. Honey, con? What are you? I'm, I was networking. Oh, God. <laughs> networking. Are you trying to con me now? <laughs> no. no. I just, I don't think you get it. You'd be just like one of those ex-college athletes, you know? I mean, great job at the DA's office as long as they never miss a lawyer's league game. It's true. I just think if you get in this way, you'll always be a hustler to Baby. them. Not sure what would have made it better for her, the story, but I maybe would have just liked one interaction between her and Worm before she left. Just me. The next category is the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. This one is just too easy, as this moment might very well be among my top five the entire decade. Just one of my personal favorites. Allow me to set the scene, and this kind of builds on the previous category. Mike and Worm have gone back to Mike's apartment to figure out their next move to help pay off Worm's debt. And guess who's moved out? Yeah, it's Joe. Well, beyond that, if you're a guy who enjoys poker and loves heading off to the casino periodically to go on a run, low stakes in my case, mind you, and I'm more of a blackjack guy too. Well, then the five words which cap off this scene are just a fun rallying cry, undoubtedly helped by the funk 49 needle drop, which follows as we see our two heroes driving towards the Taj Mahal. Just a banger scene. You know what cheers me up when I'm feeling shitty? What? Rolled up aces over kings. That right? Yeah. Check raising stupid tourists and taking huge pots off them. Yeah? Stacks and towers of checks I can't even see over. Playing all night, high limit, hold them at the Taj. Where the sand turns to gold. Fuck it, let's go. Don't tease me. Let's play some fucking cards. And now the final category, which would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. At the end of the day, this is a movie with several disparate elements, which might not blend together that well on paper, at least, including Malkovich's over-the-top performance, the Joe character, the risky decision of not including the worm character in the climax, and generally a tonal tightrope, which veers between sleazy and elegant, depending on the setting and the situation. I mean, we're talking about a sports movie where the main sport in question, Texas Hold'em, five-card draw, can be very tricky to dramatize on screen, just like many other card games. And that's where the director comes in to pull it all together. Following up a fantastic duo of nasty thrillers from earlier in the 90s, The Last Seduction and Red Rock West, John Dahl directed something much more accessible this time, while still retaining some of the edge and twistiness of those previous movies. What all these films have in common are great performances, genuine suspense, and rarely, if ever, talking down to the audience. And of course, major props have to go to him for getting the most out of a genuinely stacked cast and for directing late 90s New York City, Manhattan as the truly cinematic place that it was at the time. Accessible and getting spruced up, but filled with just enough pockets of sleaze and with plenty of interesting locales for illegal card games. For going all in and leaving with the most stacks of high society, John Dahl is the MVP.
Meunier is didn't help me. I flopped the nut straight. Beat me. Straight up. Pay him. Pay that man his money. My rating for rounders would be four and a half stars out of five. You don't have to love poker or gambling to love this movie. But it's a lot more entertaining if you do. Happy 25th anniversary to one of the most rewatchable films of the 1990s and one of my personal favorite sports movies. And if you're looking to watch Rounders, it is currently streaming on Paramount Plus, DirecTV, and Fubo. And that ends another Flop to Nuts Straight review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.